They're available for weddings, parties, get-togethers, gang-ups, bat mitzvahs, whatever. They're very funny, but be warned, they are satirical. But don't worry, we have a lot of acts that don't use the F. Acts like... Choo-choo, the herky-jerky dancer. It's like... This. Okay, so welcome to podcast number two in Ben Row Was Right. Um, we did a little introduction, um, and we also did an opening uh, title sequence thing, which was quite nice, a bit kind of meta. So what we're trying to do now is to actually say who we are and why we are talking about Doctor Who right now. This is the exposition at the beginning of the story arc, if you like. Yeah, the exposition Dalek. But <laughs> so... Um, the reason why I've come to Doctor well, I mean, it's not a case of coming to Doctor Who for me, is, as I've said in the previous podcast, is I grew up with Doctor Who, I'm going to be 50 this year, so I'm as old as Doctor Who, um, I grew up through, I, my most, uh, um, frightening experience in my young life was watching The Invasion with Patrick Troughton and the Cybermen, to the extent that I used to think that if I didn't flush the toilet, it would turn into a cyberman's head. I was five, so that was kind of okay. Uh, so I went through the whole 70s. I grew up with John Pertwee. He was the most frightening man in the world. And then we got to Tom Baker, who was basically my uncle. Um, and then we got into the 1980s, and I was around about 17, and that was the end of it for me. So that was my, that's my story of Doctor Who. So I had the first four Doctors. Um, in my life as a huge part of every Saturday evening um, when it was on um, that made me the person that I am and uh, now Chevron um, you've been very 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 much more whippersnapper than I am uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say how old I am this year but I will say that I was born close to the end of the original series run so much so that I didn't get to watch it at the time. And I came to Doctor Who in the wilderness years, having no concept of the comics, having no idea about big Finnish audio or any of the unlicensed materials. I just stumbled across it one day at the age of, I'm going to estimate 11, whilst watching Sky TV in my parents' lounge on a day off school. Would this be UK Gold? Quite probably UK Gold. UK yes. Gold when they were doing back to backs. Yeah. With so so who was your first doctor that you saw then? Was it Well Tom I don't know who John? it was that I first saw, but I remember seeing a lot of Tom Baker because there's just so much of it for them to broadcast. Mm. So I remember Tom Baker being on quite a lot, but I definitely saw some John Pertwee. I definitely saw uh, some Peace Davison in my youth. And I didn't get to see the series as a whole in sequence. No. I didn't even get to see individual seasons as a whole in sequence because of the nature of that's the way I was watching it. But, but that's an interesting thing as well, is because there's a lot of um, Canadian and American uh, uh, um, listeners and, and viewers who, who came across Doctor Who as these great huge globs of Tom Baker on PBS. Mm. And, and how is that different? You know, it's like... Um, well, for me... I didn't have the regular sit-down on a Saturday evening, and even if it had been airing when I was... What you call event TV. Even if it had been airing when I was a child, I didn't really grow up in a family that was sympathetic to the joys of science fiction. <laughs> so once I was old enough, I would take my pocket money and I'd go and buy comics and I'd discover this world of fiction that interested me on my own. And... Doctor Who ended up becoming a part of that world when I discovered it on Sky, on UK Gold, whilst channel surfing. And then every time I was alone in the house and had 
control over the remote as the youngest member of the family. Mm. Um, if I realised it was on, I would settle down and watch it. And it became something I was absolutely fascinated with. And I loved the idea of it. But there was no story arc for me beyond the, the individual serials that were being shown back to back every now and then because every story had to be a standalone for me. Really? I would watch a Tom Baker story and I would really enjoy it. I would have no idea what had come before and no mm. idea what had come after. And I would see these uh, companions. I would, I would see Tom Baker with Romana. Right. And I would think, this is brilliant. And then a little while later, I would turn on the TV and there would be Colin Baker and Perry. Yeah. And I would think, this is brilliant. And yeah. then I'd turn on the TV again and it would be Tom Baker and... Uh, Sarah Jane, and I'd go, this is brilliant! But do you remember the first time when you saw Doctor Who and how it made you feel, and what, what, what was it about it? Did you have to kind of get into it on one episode, and then, because UK Gold at that time, I think it was showing whole, uh, what the Americans call episodes, and not episodes, an episode is one sixth of a serial. They're yeah. serials. So did you, did you watch an entire serial? I think I you... probably stumbled across the second or third episode of a serial, whilst um, what grabbed you? What 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 got you into it? I just well, I mean, at that age, I would have watched anything if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> um, especially if I was off school with a cold or something. Yeah. But I do think I was drawn to it more than all of the other stuff that was on TV because it was so different to all yeah. of the kids' TV that I was used to. I wasn't really interested in the daytime TV trickery type stuff mm. and there was this fictional world and I understood the concept of fiction by this yeah. point and I knew it wasn't real I knew it was storytelling and since I was very little I, I'd wanted to be a writer so stories were something I was very interested yeah. in and I just thought these are really interesting stories these are things I couldn't come up with whilst writing stories in my exercise book at school and right. yeah. I think the, the, the fact that they were so original and the characters to me seemed so well drawn uh, some of them so flamboyant, some of them so arch, some of them, some of them incredibly quiet and sinister. Mm -hmm. um, but it really just seemed like exciting storytelling. And as, as a child who loves stories, it was fun to watch, but also as someone who thought, I want to do this one day, it was good. I, I was looking on it as, I'm off school but I'm learning because this is how really? to tell a story. This is great. And I just became really invested in these characters, even though I didn't get to see their full arcs in one go. I became really excited about what would happen to Sarah Jane. But you must have, you must have hit it at a particularly good time for Doctor Who because there were points in Doctor Who where it was a little bit um, Jason King. It was a little bit formulaic. You say that, but to, I, don't think, I don't think I would have really registered that. I mean, if you consider the fact that you know, when I was a kid, half the country would sit down and watch Noel Edmonds every Saturday oh, night. Okay, yeah. Formulaic is what we were used to. So none of this seemed formulaic to me. But that's, was... that's actually quite an amazing idea that, that Doctor Who, in that early late 80s, early 90s, was still, to use a, a hackney term, iconoclastic, even 10, 15 years after it had been off the air. I mean, about the whole base under siege formulaic nature of Patrick Troughton's era and the fact that um, for the start of John Pertwee you know who the antagonist is going to be every single time it's going to be the master every single time but it doesn't matter to, to me as a kid it certainly didn't matter because yes the master was coming back and I love the master mm. and he would have a different plan every time mm. it's like watching you know as a, kids, as a kid I never tired of watching things like the wacky racist cartoons. Right. Dick Darsley would yeah. be trying to cheat to win the race mm. every time, but he'd have a different method each time, and I relished watching that. Yeah, now there's another thing that's worth saying about that as well, is like, um, is that if you see a series of uh, wacky races, one after the other, is that you get to see the cliches and you see the, the, the mores and the customs of each, of each episode, if you have to wait a week. If you have to wait a week between each one, and you have a cliffhanger in between each one, it's an entirely different experience. 
You know, if you have a huge glob of Doctor Who, and one of the things about that is that Doctor Who, even when uh, uh, compressed into a two-hour serial with the um, uh, the sequences, the, the the reprises and the um, opening sequences that we've talked about taken out, it still makes a great story. But I think for me, watching them in a great glob, as you say, yeah. yes, I've watched a serial this time. Yeah. But. I'm not, I didn't get the opportunity to watch one serial after another to see the right, tropes. Okay. Oh, okay. Because right. I would watch them when I got the chance. Mm. And I didn't often get the chance. You know, my dad would be watching something or my mum would be watching right. something. And it was only if I was, it was only the school holidays. Mm. Uh, if I wasn't off doing something else, as children tend to do in the school holidays, when children still went outside. <laughs> um, <laughs> in my day. Well, well, I can remember a, a completely life-defined um, moment is when, for one reason or another, I can't remember what it was, I think it was, it was a wedding or something, or a funeral perhaps, is where for the first time ever, we didn't get to watch Doctor Who. And it was a Tom Baker episode, and I think it was halfway through uh, Terror of the Zygons, 1975, where for some reason or another, we weren't allowed to watch that particular episode and me, my sister, and my brother weren't allowed to watch that episode because we had to go out to some do to do with a relative dying. The fact that the relative died wasn't a life-changing circumstance. It was the fact that I couldn't watch Doctor Who that night. It was the fact that, you know, I had, from time immemorial, as far as my little brain was concerned, never missed an episode of Doctor Who. This was the one time I was forced to miss a Doctor Who episode. And I can still remember, I can still remember that seeing the, uh, um, I think it was the, um, we were talking about opening title sequences at the time, I think it was the Blue Vortex, seeing it and then being taken uh, out, put in the Ford Zephyr and driven to somewhere in the middle of nowhere to go and pay our respects to some dead relative. And all of the time thinking to myself, I wonder what's going on with the Zygons. You know, so... <laughs> I still get that really? now, because I don't own a television. No, you don't, do you? And therefore I rely on the kindness of iPlayer. Yeah, and, and iPlayer is wonderful. iPlayer is a wonderful thing. Um, and I think a lot of people, there are certain podcasts, such as The Farris Project, who discuss the overnights and, and, discuss, and, and talk about the ratings after a an episode's aired, mm. and they said, well, that doesn't take into account iPlayer, and then a couple of weeks later they'll go back and say, well, that episode whilst it posted three million on night, actually have nine million after the... But that's an amazing thought, though, isn't it? Even when so, they, they kind of say, you know, like, oh, that's, it's not good, because only, only four million people watch that right then. And you think to yourself, only four million other people were sitting down at the same time as I was with my boys watching Doctor Who, there are only, you can use the word only in that context, there were only four million, four fucking million other people sitting down at the same time as me, watching the same thing. But I am sharing an experience with four million other people. And you say only, you're a cunt for saying that. That's just ridiculous that you can say that, oh, only four million, you fucking idiot. Four million people all having a communal experience right then. 7.30, 8.30, on an evening, on a Saturday, whilst the wind and rain is blowing outside, and you are sitting there with your family watching something brilliant and beautiful. And you say only, you horrible twat. We can cut that out. Mammy we bitch. can, <laughs> but we <laughs> won't. Um... Four million people doing the same thing, you know, gathering around a campfire. That's a big fucking campfire. And, and sharing an emotional experience all at once, whether it's the same emotional experience well, yeah. or not. Yeah. You know, uh, whether or not you watched Kill the Moon and immediately thought, well, this is a pro-life allegory about the soup dragon from the Clangers, or if you thought... <laughs> Genius! <laughs> or if you questioned um, the fact that Clara's democratic system is fundamentally flawed, but in a 45-minute period, asking oh, the no, world no, 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 to... No, 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 Expand on that. Expand on that. Clara's democratic system is oh, fundamentally flawed. absolutely... 
Yeah, in a 45 minute period, she asked the world to either switch their lights off or turn them, or turn them on. Yeah. From the moon. Yeah, from the moon. You can see the surface of the Earth, but not the entire surface of the Earth. To see the entire surface the of the Earth, Hemisphere. you need 24 hours. Yeah. Voila! Ah! Aha! Well, the other thing, I saw a lot of complaints about you know, some, some usual fucking twats who were talking about, well, the physics don't work. At what that was point, me. You know, at what point does it matter that the physics don't oh, the work? Gold the gold arrow matters. Well, the yeah, gold arrow it's the story. It's the story. No, the gold, the gold, arrow, gold is, arrow is, is Bobbins and Mimsy, and I shan't have it. Not only would it not... All Mimsy were the Borogroves when the fucking arrow got shot. Not and only... they did go and dimble. Not only would it not fly, <laughs> yeah. but how by just sort of piercing the hull of a ship does it then... Right. I have to say, at this point, is space wizard science... Wizard did it. Yeah. ...overtops puny human physicists. You know, it's like the thing where they say, well, you know, you can't, an egg can't have more mass inside itself. You say, right, OK, you accept that there is a space flea inside the moon. You accept that... Now you are saying that, okay, I accept there's a space fleet, but I'm not going to accept that it can put on billions of tons in ten years. Right, okay, you accepted the fucking space fleet, right? And, and then the thing that when the space fleet flies off and you can hear it, which you shouldn't be able to through the vacuum of space, you can hear it and it shits out another moon with another space fleet in it, and, it, and you are suddenly going to say, oh, well, I don't agree with that, that's terrible, and that's ruined my experience of Doctor Who. Fuck off to Star Trek. Is that all I can say to you? Just fuck off to Star Trek in your fucking hollow deck uh, recapitulation of Sherlock and we haven't got enough budget to make an episode right now. You're, you're just shit. Man alive. Um, <laughs> fucking accept it. Don't be so negative. It's beautiful. No, it's no, wonderful. I... It's allegorical. It's, it's all of that wonderful stuff. It's like, it's Capaldi being fucking brilliant. It's Clara... Uh, Jenna Louise Coleman acting her fucking socks off and being top absolutely you know and again one of the things that we have said before there is no Doctor Who that we hate no Doctor Who that we hate even though and I've only been uh, uh, I've only been able to realise this since meeting Chevron because there was a long time where I was a big hater through ignorance and that's definitely what it is hater through ignorance of Sylvester hater through ignorance of Colin uh, because I haven't seen them. And I had decided that I was going to hate them because I hadn't seen them. And, and now you're on first name service. terms. I am. Colin and Syl. You know, me and him. Just fucking copper city. See, I quite enjoy picking things apart, but I wouldn't bother doing it if I wasn't in some way invested in it. Right. So I don't really give a toss if there are continuity errors in True Blood or Glee or something I don't watch and probably never will mm. watch. But I do care, especially when I know that it's probably seeding. I mean, I think I've told you before about when I watched Blood and Stone. Yeah. And the person I was watching it with didn't spot the continuity issue, which I knew had to be something that would, would Blood come Blood and Stone? Back. Which one was Blood and Stone? This is when Amy goes blind. Oh, right, OK. Um, oh, the arms with the sleeves. Yeah. That was totally coherent. The arms with the sleeves. So, you know, seeing a long shot of the Doctor wearing his jacket and then having a close-up of him grasping Amy's wrists with his sleeve, with his shirt sleeves rolled up drove me absolutely bananas, right. but in the best way possible. I was like, how is that adorable little troll going to, you know, resolve Moffat. this one? Yeah. The Moffat troll. The Moffat troll. Yeah. Um, Under the space bridge. But in terms of genuine continuity errors... There's also so much joy to be found in them. The unit dating conundrum, for example, which for anyone who doesn't know is based on the fact that unit, who appeared frequently in the classic series, uh, there's lots of conflicting information given from serial to serial about where they sit in time in terms of the people who are working for unit and where yeah. the brigadier, you know, how the brigadier is at a certain point. And yeah. When he is in his career. Totally referenced in the 50th anniversary. Oh, yeah, the unit dating conundrum is classic and it's great fun to discuss with great fervour, but that doesn't in any way diminish my love of unit stories. Mm. 
it just gives me one more facet to consider of a series that I love, mm. which some people might look at as inherently flawed. There's a thing, as I was saying the other day to somebody who wasn't listening, was that, uh, was that um, uh, power cannot be expressed unless it's arbitrary. Because if it, was, if it wasn't arbitrary, you wouldn't realise it was power, right? Because you'd go, you know, like, oh, that's capricious. And you, you therefore understand it's powerful in order to be capricious. If everything you were doing as a powerful person was completely right, nobody fucking recognised that you were you were expressing power. Similarly, that there are continuity. This is so abstract. That there are continuity errors in Doctor Who is a complete exposition of the fact that you care, that you can't, that you want it to be to have continuity. Right, that you are so invested in it that you want it to have continuity and you have head cannon and you have retconning and you have all of that kind of stuff to try and make it all work. There are infographics that I've seen where people are trying to make River Song's story work within the Doctor Who universe. And it's like, it's space wizards. It's space wizards. It's, you know, don't care. Don't, doesn't worry. The story overtops all of that. It's a series of fairy tales that are wonderful and heart-filling and beautiful and human, and basically human, basically humanist. Even though he's a space alien with two hearts that comes from somewhere, he's a humanist. He doesn't use guns, he doesn't use weapons, he uses intelligence, he solves things. I mean, this whole fucking story arc about him weaponizing companions, that's just, that's just a thing, that's just a story element to get the fans knotted cocks fucking themselves you know it's just it's just it's just lovely it's just a beautiful series 50 years of excellent storytelling so we have explained why and where we came to Doctor Who um, and it's lovely you know of course Doctor Who is lovely um, I'm you know I grew up with Doctor Who so did I, in a fashion. Yeah, Chevron came to Doctor Who in, in huge lumps of indigestible um, rubbish. Uh, well, not rubbish, but just wonderfulness. Um, so now, what we need to talk about, well, we don't need to talk about it, but we can talk about it, is how, as adults, now we love Doctor Who. Because I still love Doctor Who. I've got this huge hinterland of classic Doctor Who that I can remember every moment of and then we had New Who and uh, Christopher Eccleston completely revivified the whole uh, um, franchise and you've got Tennant who if there's any doctor who wasn't my doctor looking back on it now David Tennant brilliant really who he was and family of blood one of the most brilliant Doctor Who uh, two-parters that I've ever seen. David Tennant isn't my Doctor. Matt Smith, not really my Doctor either. Capaldi, absolutely my fucking Doctor. Um, so, yeah, so as an adult, uh, coming back to it, I mean, as an adult with um, three small boys, and we have that event television going on, where I will sit down and I will force my boys to watch Doctor Who with me, and uh, and they enjoy it because I tell them to. How about you then, Chevron? There was really no, there was really no sort of lost years for me because I found Doctor Who in the lost years and managed to keep up the momentum of classic Doctor Who, albeit out of sequence. But then when I heard it was coming back, I was at university. And I was the only person in my residence who had any interest whatsoever. So every Saturday, whilst uh, people were getting totally lashed, I would settle down on my own in the common room and I would watch it on my own. Mm. Um, and it was very exciting for me in the run-up to it coming back. And it's still very exciting for me in the run-up to a new series starting or the run-up to a new episode. Mm. Uh, airing mm. and I would agree that of the new Doctors there have been peaks and troughs for me in terms of how I emotionally engage with them 
Tips and trousers. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't think there was any possibility of me, of me not loving Christopher Eccleston. No. Just because he he brought this. Oh, that bit when he where it's one of the apotheosis moments of the first series was when he takes Rose's hand in his and says, "I can feel it. I can feel the earth going round." It's just you got that was such a proper Doctor Who moment. It's like I mean, even though Tom Baker was taking the piss when he did the um, "I am a Time Lord, I walk in, I walk in time," and Sarah Jane completely. Uh, uh, cuts him, cuts him off at the knees. At the time, it's just still there is that little bit of yes, you are this wonderful man, uh, person. Yeah. Um, but did Tenet, did David Tennant ever do that for you? Did no. David Tennant, no. Even when he was doing the Lonely no. God thing with Waters and no. Mars. And we discussed this because I discussed with your boys the fact that David Tennant for them is their doctor, all three of them, seemingly, mm. and. Uh, I've said to you that I think we should have an episode where they join us for a recording mm. and try to convince me. Well, now you say that is because Byron, who's my youngest, says that uh, is and you've you picked up on it as well is where he thinks that I'm Christopher Eccleston, and uh, 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 and I'm saying no. And, <laughs> yeah, don't flatter uh, yourself. <laughs> Basically, the thing is, the reason why... Maybe in shallow grave. Yes. (laughs) No, the reason why he thinks I'm Christopher Eccleston is because I'm northern and noisy and horrible. You know, uh, but, you know, there's a certain... Christopher Eccleston um, had to be that new who. He had to be that new who. You needed to have that kind of complete, uh, total reboot of the whole whole thing. Well, I'm going to admit that the TV movie passed me by uh, because of my age and my awareness of the world around me. So this was for me the first new Doctor Who and the first will it be great. Everything I've seen before has been so great and I I, idealise it. Mm. And looking back at some of the stuff I watched as a kid now, I can see elements. I mean, I'll never say wobbly sets bother me. They don't. and Don't need to discuss that now. Twice. or low production values in whatever way. That's never been something that bothers me. Mm. Things that have bothered me has, have always been elements of narrative or Maybe performance it's... rather than production values. And they're very few and far between, but as a critical adult, as, up on the, the but rebel. that's mainly after seeing a few episodes, you know, after the new series was established. Mm. And so when it came back, I was so ridiculously excited thinking, will it live up to the things that have characterised my childhood, where I went from hoping that it would be on when I was able to watch TV and find it on, on TV, to actively seeking it out when I was old enough to work out how to do that, and when I developed some crude internet skills as a teenager. and And then... It was real, it was happening in real time. I was, as we said before about the shared experience, I was sharing it with everyone else who had missed it and who had loved it, and new people who had never heard of it before and coming to it something entirely new, which reassured me that it would be accessible. And so all the serials that I hadn't yet seen or that had been lost forever, there may be back references and there are, which is great fun for fans like us, but it's also really accessible for the uninitiated. And it was so beautifully done in my mind, that there was no way I couldn't love Christopher Eccleston. Mm. Um, and get, and, and, and when it came back, I just immediately, all my hopes were realised, all of my fears were, were dashed, mm. and it became this incredible thing that really characterised mm. a part of my um, young adulthood. Well, I mean, there's a thing, there's a thing that I've uh, just realised as well, is that it's a, there's a huge part of my appreciation of, Doctor, appreciation of Doctor Who that has got to do with the generation thing. It's like, uh, Patrick Troughton, your nutter uncle. So I'm six, he's my nutter uncle, he's my dad's brother, who's uh, the black sheep of the family. John Pertwee, he's your dad. Right, he is your fucking dad. Well, maybe dad. he's your dad. No, he's, he's your dad. He's, he's your dad. He's, he's so patronising. He, he puts his, his hand on the back of his neck and scratches the back of his neck when he's trying to think of something 
and then comes out with the most patronising thing that you could possibly say, he's your fucking dad. Then you get Tom Baker, who's your lunatic dad who's had one too many hits on the bomb. And he's just going, yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll cut this out. And then, and this is this is when I stopped watching it, is because Peter Davison was 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 no relation of mine. I had no relation to him whatsoever. He was not my uncle, he was not my brother, he was not my uh, 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 father, he was nothing. Whereas, up until that time, because I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, sixteen, up until that time, all of those Doctor Whos had been in their late forties, uh, and they had been father figures. Peter Davison, not a father figure. Peter Davison, bloke down a pub. Not even a bloke down a pub. Fucking uh, um, tax uh, uh, inspector from way, I don't know. I, it just, just didn't work for me. And then you got to um, a little glimmer of um, Colin Baker having that gravitas. Because it's one of the things about Colin Baker is that a lot of people didn't kind of get to was that the fact that what they tried to do with Colin Baker was to give him that gravitas back. And they did it wrong. They gave him that, that gravitas back by making him nasty. They made him the dick, the dick in the TARDIS. You know, and, and then what they wanted to do was to make, you know, well, we'll have two years to make him not a dick, and they didn't have the opportunity. But I think it's very early days, mm. and a lot of people are talking about how uh, they'd be interested to see how the current Doctor develops in, in, season, in his subsequent seasons. But they've kind of made Paulie, well, they've definitely made Paulie the dick in the TARDIS. He is, he is, in many ways, If I mean, I adore him, I think he's... He's. I've been I've been wary of of putting him in the hierarchy before the end of the season. Right. But he's very safely top three already, and oh, I absolutely. really can't see him change that changing uh, anytime soon. I absolutely adore this characterization of the Doctor. Yeah. It's my by far and away my favourite of the new series, Doctors. I think he's got a huge amount of perfectly going on. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think well, well, if, if you Hartnell's were... really coming through a lot as well. And... Well, yeah, but see, I don't remember Hartnell. I, 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 okay, that, like, if you say, right, here's a, here's a game, right, which means nothing, but like the new Who Doctors compared to the classic Doctors, which classic Doctor are the new Who's? Right? So Tennant is Baker, Tom Baker. Do you think? I don't like making the comparisons because right. Well, just before just before you go on that, there's this there's this thing that the uh, blue box guys do and a couple of other people do who say this thing about Peter Davison's characterisation of the Doctor is saying that he's always very breathy, uh, and 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 what they put it down to is the fact that uh, the scenes were shot out of sequence, so that Peter Davison didn't know. How to be at the end of well, the first three serials, yes, but yes. beyond that, you... yeah, no, but we're talking is, about uh, right um... now. I've watched the documentaries with Peter Davison, either he is recapitulating his characterization of the doctor in the documentaries, or he is actually breathy. I prefer to think he's actually breathy, that's his thing, he's a breathy guy. He's going, you know, and that's his thing. It's, I don't think he made the decision to be breathy in the scenes that he was shooting in Eric Star Wars renditions of fucking Cybermen in, in Cockland. Um, I just I just think that's Peter Davison. That's Peter Davison. You're looking at me with a face like a Cyberman. <laughs> Original Mondas. And original Mondas, open them up, and just not agreeing with me at all. But uh, I do think Peter Davison, fantastic. I mean, there's a couple of things that uh, the chaps on, shouldn't call them chaps, but the, but the chapesses, I'm going to cut that, on Verity have said is that if there's anybody that needs to uh, uh, narrate the history of Doctor Who, it should be Peter Davison, because he's such a lovely man. Well, now that... Uh, Nick Courtney's gone, yes, because Aww. there is nothing that gets me going. Uh, didn't that break your heart, that bit? Where, oh, did, didn't that just fucking the destroy you? The phone and he's gone. Uh, oh, man. And the thumb. Um. But, but the fact, that's the thing, is, is that's a thing that only fans, you know, there were, 
I would say hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Well, bear in mind, some ch some children had met the Brigadier in the Sarah Jane Adventures. Really? Oh, it's just lovely. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my some, here up a little bit now. Some had met the Brigadier. The Brig. Who, who was retired with his daughter. He started off as a colonel. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, he started, off as, he started off as Brett Ryan. Um, of course he did. But that's... But then he was in the Web of Fear, and you thought he might have been a traitor. Well, yeah. Oh, it's a good one. Um, the brig is very special to me. Yeah. Because he... I've already said that I'm a big Time Trouton fan. Mm. Um, and I do enjoy Poetry Era as well. Yeah. Um, I got very upset about Caroline John, too. And... Caroline John? So that, no, Caroline John. Oh, no. Liz Shaw? Yeah. No, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. So it, it's been a shitty couple of years, really. We've lost Marytown, we've lost Caroline John, yeah. um, Liz Sladen. Oh. oh, what a lovely, what a lovely moment but, in the deep breath, though. Yeah, but um, and what's, what a brilliant fucking scene. I mean, I mean, the guy, um, I forget what his name is, somebody Williams, almost stole that scene. Did, do you not think it's the doctor is being all kind of like, yeah, there's a mirror and let's go for I'm wearing it and it's biting and all that kind of thing, but the trap all That was yeah, that's that that scene I think was very special. But I mean in terms of Nick Courtney, I think yes. I think what I was getting at was on a lot of the uh, Doctor Who DVDs, mm. there are a number of extras that feature Nick Courtney. No. And his voice is just so beautifully resonant. Mm. And uh there's a there's a feature that they do where uh, he he sort of only really does the opening and closing of it, but they they go through uh, old newspaper clippings about Doctor Who and reviews and things like that. Uh, today's Times, tomorrow's Times, even tomorrow's Times um, is is what they call the feature. And any any extra that Nick Courtney was on, I watch and watch again because he was just oh and now that he's gone I suppose Peter Davison's got that lovely comforting voice yeah. <laughs> um, I mean that's the thing it's, it's one of the things that was introduced to me by, by New Who because I'm a, a, a classic Doctor Who fan through thick and thin it's still going I know uh, the way it and I think it's fine I think it's just getting fucked up with the memory mm -hmm. um, is that New Who was the first uh, Doctor Who that made me cry on a number of occasions. I mean, really, seriously, made me fucking blub like uh, 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 a big old Jesse. I have a feeling that you were emotionally, you were moved by the things that I found less effective. Family of Blood just fucking killed me in two. You know, it was just, well, yeah, okay. Whereas, uh, for those who can't see, because this is a podcast and we are listening, is uh, Chevron has a face like a smacked ass right now. You can't let me be diplomatic, can you? You can't let me be silent and diplomatic. No. So, so you, have you never been moved by New Who? I, um, no, that's certainly not the case, that I've never been moved by New Who. There are bits that have got me right in my tiny robot heart. But <laughs> there are certainly also bits that I've found a little bit mawkishness and overblown. Yes, definitely. And mawkishness is a, is a thing that's going mawkishness on. Mawkishness was a big problem yeah. with me and Russell T Davies, which I think is part of why I don't count David Tennant among my favourite. Right, so uh, again, we have a, a, an agenda for this podcast, which was like an uh, introduction, here we are, uh, me talking about my uh, life with Doctor Who, um, Chevron talking about her life with Doctor Who, uh, and then our kind of uh, try and push them together and find out what it is. Um, this is what happens when I let you drive. Yeah, but here's the thing, is that uh, one of the things that I think overarches all of it, and I think it's the reason why we have both come to it from different directions, in completely different lives. I mean, there's no... We are so different, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, in so many ways, but I think... I'm sober. You're sober, and I'm not. Uh, but um, I think... One of the things that kind of ties together the whole Doctor Who appreciation is the basic humanism 
of the Doctor. Mm. You know, he's an intelligent man, person, who is solving problems without recourse to weapons or force. It's through cleverness, it's through kindness, it's through excellence, it's through endeavour. This whole arc of he weaponizes his companions in order to do it, that's just a lot of shit from Davros. That's, prop, that's Nazi propaganda from the Daleks. Right? The Doctor is a humanist. Discuss. Or Javelin, whichever one. Well, the Doctor certainly has a... Up until, this, up, up until now, has, has definitely shown a... Um, predilection for the human peoples mm-hmm. and he's a he's a, a libertarian of sorts and also um an anarchist he's a, but no but he he you know he's not violent unless he needs to be he doesn't one of the most wonderful um um uh, uh i think it was a bob hobson was it a bob hobson the sun well, i don't know what you're about to say yes the sun makers yeah yeah Right, so it starts off, it starts off being about income tax, mm-hmm. right, so that's quite right-wing. At the end of it, it gets quite unionist, it's about let's all be, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's one of the things is that Doctor Who does very, very well, is that it, it kind of um, transcends petty politics, I think. I, I, I think it does. I think I think it becomes something more. I think it's something that uh, even the most ardent right winger and hugely smelly socialist can get behind is that there is something beyond. I'm talking box right now, but I, I do. I, no, I, I firmly believe that Doctor Who's the the Doctor uh, transcends all of that shite. Thinking face. I don't know. I mean, I, I could be talking about but you know. You could. Um, well, I think we've had an interesting, long, windy road to get here. But why don't we discuss how we came to make this podcast? Because we met three-ish years ago. Three years ago, yeah. Um, so we were both in a pub. Yes. With mutual friends. Yes. Uh, and we proceeded to somehow get on to Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and for the next couple of hours, we sat and talked non-stop whilst our two friends just watched us slack-jawed and very confused and alienated from the conversation. And yeah. it was the start of a, I'm hesitant to say beautiful friendship, but so. a friendship. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think, that's, I think uh, the mutual appreciation of something um, yeah, I think that's true. I think um, one of the things that was completely clear uh, right back then was that we both had an appreciation for stories. Now, it's become clear from conversations since then is that you actually have quite a academic interest in stories, is it, is in that you are a classicist and you, you have studied how stories work and you write, and you, you, you kind of do this as, as a kind of, almost as a career, is that you, you work in a place where you are able to see stories develop. Yeah, fuck off. Um, but you do. I, I, well, you I see stories develop everywhere. That's why when I lived in London, I used to just sit on the underground for hours at a time, watching people silently sitting and inventing stories for them. Yeah, but I think that's the thing, is, about, is, is, is one of the things that I love about Doctor Who, is that I see stories develop, and this is the thing that pisses me off sometimes about negativity that you find on certain uh, uh, critiques of Doctor Who, is that they are talking about, oh, well, I didn't quite like how that works, and I don't quite like how that this story works. And, and, and I'm doing that Cro-Magnon, Neolithic, Kind of thing was well. You fucking do it then. You know, if you if you've got any idea how to do it, you fucking do it, right? You don't have. You you're not Rob Shearman. You're not. Who's Rob Shearman? They are my. Oh, he wrote. Oh, didn't he? No, I know who Rob Shearman is. Well, I know you do, but other people might not. But very few people are Rob Shearman. 
and Tony. Tony, Mr. Haddock. Yeah, which is lovely. I mean, it's just one of the things that I got introduced to is that, uh, again, due to Chevron, is that I went out to Forbidden Planet, or as my boy calls it, Forgotten Panic, um, and bought the Running Through Corridors 1960s Volume 1 and read from, from stem to stern, from cover to cover, um, everything they had to say about their year of watching 1960s Doctor Who. One of the things that I discovered about it is there are not as many base under siege stories as you think there are. And that there is a lot of trans and stories that are far more intricate, wonderful, and about character than you would think. You thought it was Monster of the Week. Is it shit? It isn't. It's not Monster of the Week. It's a fan appreciation. It's a fan idea of, a, of, of what all these lost episodes should be. These guys have sat down and listened to the audio that has been recorded by fans with their cassette recorders against their 12-inch uh, um, tube TV and recorded those. And they've looked at the, the telesnaps and they've done that. They've watched two episodes a day for an entire year. They've gone through the whole canon from Hartnell to, and I'm really looking forward to volume two. I don't know whether it's going to happen. I hope it does, because I really want to hear what Rob and Tony, because I know them very well, um, I'm going to say about the Pertwee. You know Toby Hayday well enough to call him Tony. I do. I know Toby so well I can call him Tony, because that's, you know, that's his weekend name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so we met in a pub. <laughs> we met, yes. Uh, it's all been downhill from there. Mm. We met in a pub, and um, well, we met in a pub, and I let fly that I was a bit of a Sylvester denier. And Chevron says to me, uh, "You're a twat." Uh, I say it frequently. Pretty much, uh, uh, and I, I need to show you, not because I want for your life to be better, just because I need to prove to you that you're an arsehole. Here is a couple of things that you should see, Paradise Towers, the... Uh, the Oh, amazing. I, I sat watching the Curse of Fenric, even though thinking it was cunt stressing, sorry, uh, stunt casting, um, of... Um, Piccolous uh, bloody Parsons. Piccolous Narsons. Uh, was I just thought, but he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He was really good. I just, I, was, I just totally didn't see who it was because he was so good. Uh, and I was just, I was, my mouth was hanging open. And I was watching this and thinking, this is great TV. And what a dick I was for not accepting this as a thing. But clearly, I was 18, 19, 20 at the time. You can't have a camp doctor in your life at that time. You know, well, you know, this is, we have, this is another thing. Well, you say, I'd say John Pertwee's arguably, whilst being action super man. Super camp, yeah. Super macho, super <laughs> He's camp. Jason King, yeah. But, you know, um, when you're 12 to 16, no, I get you don't see it. But when you're 16 saying. to 20, you do see it. Um, but, but there is going to be a podcast that we are going to talk about later, which is probably going to be quite difficult. It's going to be about the inherent misogyny of the older fat is that um, I what I want to investigate is whether my uh, take on certain companions is due to misogyny. Now, I want to I want to figure that out. I want to figure out whether that's the case. Whether the reason why I don't like Amy Pond is not because she's a good, a well-written character. It's because I don't like her because she is actually a powerful woman. I yeah, and I don't need I don't need to discuss at length why I dislike Mark Jones to know why, but I can discuss at length why I dislike Mark Jones, and I well, shall. That's the thing. It's like that's the thing. It's like do um, I don't dislike Martha Jones? Is that misogyny? Is that a thing? You know, is that is that what it's about? I, mean, I would love to know, and and uh, and I want to I want I want to interrogate that. Well, maybe we should uh, maybe we should promise that as the next one then. 
what, the misogyny, the latent mm, misogyny well, we've, in we've, older. we've trailed it now. Yeah, I think we have. But, but, but I mean, one of the things that I, before um, Chevron came across to uh, have this farrago of nonsense that we are speaking now, is one of the things that I texted her was to say, one of the things that we could talk about is, I don't hate any Doctor Who. So, we can talk about misogyny, uh, inherent, wherever, uh, whatever, but what I really love to talk about in our next podcast, or maybe the next book one, is about how it's ridiculous to hate any part of Doctor Who, how it is ridiculous to be negative about Doctor mm, Who. Yeah, I mean, I think you've based it on something that I may have said, where I feel that I don't hate any Doctor Who yeah. as a whole. There are elements of Doctor Who I dislike intensely, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to say hate because it's a very strong word. Oh yeah. But there are elements that I find uh, off-putting. We need to investigate that. I think that's a good thing to, to, but to look at. it'll always be part of something that as a whole I appreciate, and I'll just grit my teeth and get over the fact that I don't like Martha Jones or whatever else yeah. it may be. Uh, yeah, and uh, yes, I think we can agree to uh, talk about that because it's the it's the basic. Uh, and uh, this is my end part to this podcast, and I've really enjoyed this. But one of the things that I want to say, I think, the basic humanity of Doctor Who is the thing. Is the thing. I'm going to let you keep going. All right, now that's enough. Well, um, then I think we'll call that a day. Yeah, lovely. Stop giving me things to edit. <laughs>